You're listening to RIA Collective with your host, Charlie Van Derven, a podcast designed to help financial professionals remove the fear and anxiety around going independent. Let's go. I couldn't be more excited for our guest today. Um, Jeff Concepcion, founder and CEO of Stratus Wealth Partners, is joining us on RIA Collective today. And uh, we're going to talk about Jeff's experience in the industry. It's not very often I get to interview somebody that's got three or more decades in uh, in, in working with advisors. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, FINRA's numbers continue to decrease a little bit. And uh, and so Jeff's on the independent side of, of our industry. I want to pick his brain and see what he thinks the, the catalyst behind that is. And uh, we're going to talk about, you know, culture, mission, that sort of thing at Stratus Wealth Partners, and hopefully bring some wisdom to our listeners who are considering that change from a wirehouse environment into a more independent or RIA space. Jeff Concepcion, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for mentioning the three decades, because I'm sure in looking at this baby face, no one would ever recognize that level of experience, so thank you for that call out. <laughs> and, and Jeff, I wouldn't actually, right? And, and, and uh, you know, I, I was saying before we started recording, I actually met you nine or 10 years ago, maybe maybe. Social Advisors is nine years old now, so maybe it's 11 or 12 years ago at an LPL conference when I was with FMG Suite. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been watching you and following your career now for 10 years. And of course, we do some work together on the recruiting side a little bit. Um, and uh, and yeah, you absolutely do not look like you've got that kind of experience. I'm having fun. Haven't worked a day in a long, long time. Just having that's, fun. That's, so. that's awesome. And I look back, I got started in 98 putting advice, putting websites together for wirehouses. And uh, man, we're talking almost 25 years ago. And I go, gosh, where did that time go? It does fly when you're having fun. So It, it does. And, mo and most days I am. Most days. Yeah. Some days there are exceptions there, but most days I'm having fun. We chatted about NFL football. We're both NFL fans growing up in small markets like Cleveland and, and Green Bay. Um, but, you know, all that stuff aside, Jeff, I'm interested in picking your brain a little bit, bringing some wisdom to our listeners. Um, you know, the numbers, as we talked about, the 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 numbers at Finra, and I don't have the specific stats in front of me. I'm sure with a couple of keystrokes, I could find it very quickly. But I mean, for a decade, we've watched this thing decrease with the firms that are registered, right? With the registered reps registered with Finra. Tell me about that. What do you think the catalyst behind behind those changes and those drops in numbers are? I think it's some of the stuff that you know you and I have chatted about, and the folks. I think there are two components to it. There's an there's an evident component, and then there's maybe a less evident component. I think. What people think about really is a sort of migration from employee, bank, you know, wire to independence. Uh, there's also what people believe to be probably sort of the simplification, if you will, of having maybe one master, not two masters, you know, the SEC versus the SEC and FINRA. Right. I think some people naively think that there's less supervision on the SEC side, and there really isn't. I mean, the SEC and FINRA probably are more connected today and communicate better, even inclusive of you know state uh, insurance agencies. There's more communication I've found between all these agencies, which is really good. But I think it's really the flexibility to be a, a, a fiduciary to kind of take that fee path. That's sort of the evident part. I think the less evident part is I just think there are fewer people coming into the industry. Uh, we have an old and aging industry. So when people are leaving and exiting towards that fiduciary um, environment, you have fewer people coming in uh, as well. It's a combination of those two things, I think, to your point, that have led to these declining numbers. 
Yeah. It's, what about technology? I mean, I think, uh, you know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, and again, I got started doing websites for, you know, for, for a handful of wirehouses, um, you know, back in the late nineties, we were doing data-driven templated websites. My goodness, how far has that simple marketing technology come over the last 20 years, but also things like financial planning software and, you know, and, and, and other, other parts of that technology stack years ago, if you wanted the best resources, you had to work for the largest firms. It seems to me that, you know, an open marketplace is actually driving more evolution and more change as far as technology, making that, you know, independent broker dealer or that RIA world even more attractive. No doubt. And I think there's a myth there, right? I think, you know, one of the stories that the big firms, the employee-based firms told their folks is, hey, those little independent shops are great. You might get a good payout, but you can't serve your clients in the same way. So when you think about uh, independent broker dealers, when you think about sort of multi-custodial RIAs and all the tools that you reference that are out there, I think in many cases, advisors at a minimum can do what they did previously, technology and product-wise. And I'm going to suggest that in most cases, they're actually able to do more by accessing what's out there through the best independent BDs, Pershing, Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade. Uh, they're getting access to more product as good or better technology uh, whether that's CRM-based, whether it's planning-based, whether it's performance reporting-based. We brought over a great team uh, who's been with us for a handful of years now from BNY. It was a high net worth team. And on the one-year anniversary, the, the guy who runs that team is really buttoned up and he wanted an audience to say, let me tell you what my experience has been. And one of the comments he made to me is he never anticipated, there are lots of things that he expected out of independence, but one of the things that he didn't anticipate is this annual review that he could put together for his clients with the data and sort of the uh, the analytics and, and 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 all the substance. He never expected that that would be as good or better than what he was able to present at BNY. And sometimes it's the customization, the flexibility. And to your point, a lot of these shops that are just creating great, great tools for uh, for technology for independent firms. Yeah, I think, what about, what about, I want to ask you a little bit about risk, right? Because I've asked this question of on the broker dealer side recently, on the, on the wirehouse captive kind of employee model broker dealer side. And they said, yeah, but when someone goes RIA, they take on a whole lot more risks. They're not backed by the firm. I, I, I really don't have commentary on that, Jeff. You're in a better position to talk about that. Do you, do you feel that's true or? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think there are aspects of that at least that are true. And I guess it's dependent on how you define risk Um, to an extent when you're attached to one of those larger firms, there is sort of that mothership feeling, right? Yeah. So I think you can define risk in many ways. Talk about it from a business standpoint. Um, the mothership pays for real estate when you go independent. Sure. In, in our particular model, you can cover real estate or we can cover it. But in mo- when most folks go independent, they're signing a lease. They're taking on an obligation for space and infrastructure and technology, all the things that we're talking about. So I think there's risk there to a degree. Yeah. Uh, if an advisor were to get sideways with a client, in some cases, the mothership you know, is responsible not only for providing them E&O, which becomes a line item when they go independent, but maybe sometimes and even subsidizing um, if there's a resolution involved. So I think from a business standpoint, from a um, regulatory, from a compliance standpoint, from a financial standpoint, there are degrees of risk. The question is, are those degrees reasonable in exchange for the reward that they receive? And I would suggest that they're beyond reasonable because there's such a lift in terms of not only compensation, which is the obvious, but net worth value uh, of their enterprise when they own it in a free market. So I would say that there are probably some risks, it's fair to say, but the rewards so grossly outweigh them that we continue to see this migration you referenced earlier. 
Yeah. And I, and I'll tell you what, I think uh, the fiduciary piece of that is a really important part of the conversation, right? So there are, you know, I I don't, there's a lot of brands out there that won't want me saying this, but there are inherent biases when you're representing a large firm that maybe has products to sell um, that, you know, so, so being in an independent space, not being, you know, so, so tied to that particular firm and those particular products actually allow you to, to represent as a fiduciary where, you know, I'm, you don't have to comment on it, Jeff, because I, I don't want to put any words in your mouth whatsoever. But you can say that word when we, you're with a large firm that has some initiatives, right, and have some have some uh, uh, some goals. Um, but is it really true? Again, I don't I don't need you to comment on that whatsoever. But just I'd be happy to. Yeah, go I'd ahead. be happy to <laughs> go for it. Then, yeah, I mean, I think some firms manage it better than others, and others yeah. are just um, riddled with conflict in terms of. Yeah mandates, if you will, to have pieces of proprietary product inside of portfolios. And sometimes that proprietary product doesn't bear the name of the firm or the platform. So it's even less obvious that it's something where there's, you know, they're getting more juice uh, when certain products are used. You see it through initiatives for cross-sells, for lending, for, you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, so there's no doubt in my mind that someone could, an advisor could be well-intended to act on a conflict-free basis in in some of the employee type environments and larger firms, but it's almost inherent and almost forced by the model uh, that is more challenging. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm saying it's more challenging to do it based yeah. on some of the conflicts. So yeah, absolutely the truth. Um, and so I say when, when an advisor is moving independent fiduciary is really the messaging around that. Right. So I, you know, that's, uh, that's, you know, that I, I think one of the fears that people run into is, Oh my gosh, how am I going to retain my clients? Right. So in, in making that move and, you know, when we help advisors through that transition, that conversation around fiduciary is really the messaging that we put out there, um, and and you know helps helps obviously retain you know more of more of that asset base that they have. Yeah, there's no doubt. There are lots of reasons I think that people get driven towards independence, and I think one of them uh, is really the autonomy. Uh, when you sit in the employee type models, you know, fifty to sixty cents on every dollar is being spent on your behalf. Yeah. And in many cases, the advisors don't feel that they get the value, don't need, don't want a lot of that infrastructure that's there. And I think in our model and independence in general, the goal is to give the advisor as much of the revenue as, as, as can be given to them to yeah. decide how they want to spend it in their independent practices, be it on marketing, on technology, on software, on a world-class staff, on a world-class look and feel to their real estate, you know, whatever that happens to be. So they just get more autonomy about how they operate their business, where they spend their dollars and how they drive whatever experience they want to drive to their end clients. Yeah. Love that. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit. We talk about independence. I want to, I want to kind of get into the mindset if we can of the advisors you work with when they transition. Now, Stratus Wealth Partners. It's a scary place, by the way. The minds of some of these folks, I wouldn't want to be there too long. No, I'm teasing. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we'll touch on it softly. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, 2008, you've been recruiting on that side. Of course, your, you know, your former life prior to prior to starting Stratus Wealth Partners at, at Lincoln Financial Group. Was that, you know, was that a kind of a recruiting role as well? I really couldn't get much out of the research that I did there, but... It was a combination of things. I was responsible for, um, in my, I guess, latest run there, the eastern third of the United States. Okay. And then I had a more national role that was um, business development driven. It was really strategic alliances and helping advisors grow their business through, uh, at that point, really M&A wasn't what it is today, the sort of frenzy around M&A. Yeah. It was more strategic alliances with uh, CPA firms and property casualty firms and financial institutions, uh, practice management. 
So, but there was business development and recruiting tied to that as well. Cool. So Stratus Wealth Partners is north of about, about 300 advisors now. Is that a... Uh... Is Something that, along, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I, I would okay. say 350-ish, but I'm not entirely awesome. sure. Awesome. The growth is impressive, Jeff. As as you're having conversations with advisors who are considering that move to independence, are there any commonalities that you can see? Like, are they really, you know, entrepreneurial in their mindset? Um, you know, are they, you know, Mavericks want to go take on the world and leave that that maybe comfy confines of working at one of the big the big wirehouses, any commonalities that you see that that kind of shape up who the right advisor is coming into the space? It's, it's all of the above. It's everything that you said, right? People are entrepreneurial, but in varying degrees. And in some cases, they're not entrepreneurial, but they just want the autonomy to run their own business. And what we really developed our business model on was the notion that the reason people are leaving employee and wirehouse models in most cases, is not because they have a burning desire to be responsible for billing or for HR or for real estate or for compliance or for technology. That's not the desire. The desire is to really control their business, receive more of their revenue, invest in the business the way that they want to invest in it. Yet when they do that, there are these dozen other items that need to get done. So I think the purpose of firms like ours is to allow the advisors to become independent for the reasons that they want to and not be encumbered with many, many other things that those firms were doing on their behalf. If we can do them at a tiny fraction of the cost and arguably, and when I say we, I don't mean Stratos, I mean Stratos and firms like us uh, can be such great fiduciaries and stewards of our business models that we can deliver everything they had and more, let them be independent where they want to be and let them be supported where they need to be while still driving a lion's share of the economics to them, to their wallet. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you know, you, you serve the industry in a great way. Um, I heard a stat, I can't back this up with any kind of reference, but this is uh, you know, so this is hearsay, but I think it's probably not too far off. Um, at any one given time, 10% of advisors on that captive side, that employee model side, are engaged in a recruiting type conversation. I, I heard furthermore that 60% are, are considering it, but you know, let's stick with the 10% for right now. Um, for, those, for those folks listening, and uh, is, is there anything, any advice that you can give them for like, let's say the 12 months, maybe six months, maybe three months leading up to making that change that's gonna help them retain more assets in their book of business when they make that transition. Um, anything that you've seen advisors do well in preparation for that move? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I think it's energy, you know? I mean, I think it's reaching out and touching the clients in a more proactive way than they ever have before, um, solidifying key relationships, demonstrating or illustrating value add, depending on what type of model they're coming from, whether it's protocol or non-protocol, making sure that their clients know how to reach and contact them in a way that doesn't go outside of any contractual obligations or restrictions that they might have. This is being really thoughtful. I mean, you can leave in a fire drill and you you probably will do perfectly fine, but the, the level of stress and anxiety and potentially breakage is greater than if it's something that's really thoughtful and well-planned and you understand what you can and can't do. You have legal counsel, there's a tremendous amount of preparation and you exit sort of honoring in the best way you can, the guidelines of the relationship you have with the firm that you're associated with. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to hear those stats from you. I think... <clears throat> Probably 50, I think your number is probably a good number, 50 or 60% of folks maybe consider it, right? Yeah. Uh, but there's sort of a knowledge gap there. A lot of times they don't even know what they don't know about 
what it means to go independent or what choices out there, yeah. uh, how much responsibility do they have to take on? Where do they land? What are the, and I think for a lot of advisors, it's daunting to understand the hundred ways that they could plug in all of which are independent, but sort of iterations of independence. So. Well, and of course, I think a lot of people hear the horror stories, right? I mean, there are certainly, you know, if you, you got to do it right. I, I think in the, you know, in the, in the six months to 12 months leading up to that transition, you, I mean, you said it, right. It is about being focused on key relationships because of course you've got a no contact clause. Most advisors, you know, when they're, when they're leaving that, that former environment, um, but you know, I, I'll tell you, I've watched advisors leave a wirehouse, move into independence, and then have to go through mediation against that firm, right? And that's not an e. That's that's a daunting thing to have to do. I believe that those stories are told more, but it's actually the lesser of the experience. One hundred and ten percent. One hundred and ten percent. Yep. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. So most transitions go extraordinarily well. Yeah. Most firms are reasonable if you follow the guidelines. There are a few, and I wouldn't mind calling them out by name, that I yeah. that I think are um, horrific in the way that they treat people and the way that they go after advisors who leave exactly the way they're supposed to leave. But if they're amazing advisors, you shouldn't be surprised that their clients will seek them out and find them, even if they're not proactive. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the big guys, you've got two that are still protocol, Wells and Merrill Lynch, yep. two that have exited the protocol, Morgan Stanley and UBS. Um, and then you have all kinds of iterations of employee models, non-solicits, non-competes, and then most onerous and not always enforceable, non-acceptance, right? So you don't solicit the client, you're not competing, but they find you and you still can't take, you know. So again, every state looks at these things differently as well. So there, there's a lot of complexity there and really good thought and analysis prior to an exit. Just can't control everything, but generally speaking, that will result in you know better outcomes. Yeah, and so of, of course, you know, amongst many other things, Stratus Wealth Partners is there to help with the to help with the details around a transition like that, perhaps. And I don't, again, I don't want to offer services that you guys don't offer, Jeff. But you know, perhaps reviewing that agreement that you have. I don't know if that's a, you know if that's part of what the offering is, but making that transition as smooth as possible. And it's something you guys have done hundreds of times. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and we'll look at the guy. We have to be careful in terms of practicing law, but because yeah. I know all the contracts so well and. My business partner Charles Shapiro, who runs uh, business development for us, know those knows those agreements so well. Uh, oftentimes, he and his team and I will look at them and just to give general feedback. But we always not only suggest, but almost mandate or require that they get counsel. We would never want someone to act on right. our recommendation. There are so many good firms out there that specialize in reviewing these contracts. They actually know what the contracts say. They know how the firms will act and what they do, and can kind of hold the hand of these teams. To make sure they're leaving in a thoughtful and respectful way. Yeah, very cool. Um, I want to learn a little bit more about Stratus before we before we part today. Talk to me about like you know missions and values, Jeff. What if if uh, if an advisor's transitioning and Stratus is a good option for them? What's what, what do they what can they expect as a cultural experience? Tell me about how the you know how the firm works, missions, values, things along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the ways I would describe us uh, culturally is sort of a gentle shop. I think we. Uh, we build a lot of close relationship with our folks internally and externally. Uh, people first. Everything sort of solves itself if you're if you're good to people, if you're honorable, if you do what you say you're going to do. If you do more than you say you're going to do, you end up with raving fans. A lot of our growth has come from folks who joined us and introduced us to their friends, saying, "Hey, this is an incredible home and independence with a soft land, landing in such a way that I'm focusing on what matters, my client experience and growth." So I would say culturally, it's just it's a. I believe I hope that 
the goal is it's a gentle shop where we just treat people well. Um, if you ask me what a calling card is, I would say there are a couple of things. One is depth. Uh, when people who run similar business models talk about technology, they oftentimes will have one or two or three or four people in technology. I think we have 13 or 14 folks, yeah. you know, uh, a transition team. It's not someone to open accounts. It's a team of five or six dedicated folks that flexes up to a dozen all cross-trained so that when a team comes over, there's a lot of bandwidth there to make sure accounts move and move quickly. In that transition process, we're talking to the advisors typically six to eight weeks in advance. And every week there's a checklist and responsibilities and Salesforce tasks driven to places in and outside of our organization for follow-up to make sure that the day the advisor leaves, everything is as buttoned up as can be. It's not a perfect process, but it's a pretty darn good one. Um, and then I would say another calling card or uniqueness is entrepreneurship and ownership. We want to teach people how to move from it. And sometimes you'd be shocked. These are advisors with 200 million, 500 million, 2 billion in assets. They're still oftentimes, not always, acting more as an advisor than they are as a CEO. Right. Because to be a CEO, you're just you're you have different responsibilities, tasks and visions relative to what you're growing and building. Uh, so that evolution from an advisor to a CEO is super important to us. And my last comment is inorganic growth. I think something we do exceptionally well is M&A. And it's not just at the enterprise level where we're investing. Two thirds, three quarters of our activity on the M&A front are helping our partners with sub acquisitions tuck in businesses. We help them find them. We help them articulate and we help them win and sort of stand out as just a, a really quality potential option for someone looking to retire. Those are maybe a few areas that I would say I feel confident that that we've we're figuring that we're working hard to figure things out. Well and I can I can speak to that. We've I've actually worked with uh with Stratus in two different capacities, right? So um going back when I was with FMG for a few years, my communication was mostly Charles and Jim Lupica at that time. And now my communication, most of our firm's communication runs with uh, you know, your director of marketing, Kevin Elvington. The amount of support that we get, even as like an outside vendor providing some services, um, is pretty impressive. In fact, you know, it's not, it's not like we don't have that with every, you know, with every relationship that we've got. So I can speak to that from our perspective. Um, you also said something that uh, was actually on my list to ask you about. So it's a lob ball for me. Thank you for that. Um, one of the unique things about this industry, and there's many of them. You've got a financial advisor that comes in, no matter how they enter the industry, oftentimes wirehouse, right? Oftentimes in that employee model. They're a successful advisor. They survived the first few years. Kudos to that. But as they grow assets, they grow team, right? As they grow team, their role as an advisor has to change to leadership, right? Has to change to CEO. And there's not, you know, a lot, many, many advisors can't handle that transition. Right. And we I do a lot of performance coaching. Oftentimes the coaching is around that transition from sole proprietor or, you know, uh, in, in, you know, individual advisor to now we've got a CA, now we've got a junior advisor, now we've got back office support staff, whatever that is. I mean, that's really a lot of what Stratus offers is making sure that that successful advisor doesn't lose their footing when they go from advisor to CEO. A hundred percent. And we've done that. I think done a reasonably well job. A reasonably good job through Charles and his team. But going back a handful of years ago, thinking we needed something more than that, we started a practice management and consulting business internally that had one person. Now there are six people there. And what's very interesting is that some of that is business development and marketing driven for help, trying to help the advisors have a plan. Uh, some of it is um, 
vision-based relative to a blueprint. What does your organization look like today? You have five people associated. What does it need to look like to go where you want to go? Maybe it's 10 folks. What are those roles? What are the skill sets? We have an HR capacity where we'll actually you know, do job postings for them and screen so that they get 70 resumes coming in. We eliminate everything and all the noise, and now they get two or three really qualified. So that the capacity to help advisors know where they want to be and then actually play a role in helping them to get there has come from a lot of the practice management and HR stuff, you know, the consulting that's taking place today as well. Yeah, so very cool. Listen, Jeff Concepcion, I love the wisdom, man. And I thank you so much for sharing it with our audience. Um, if we've got any listeners, Jeff, that are, are really kind of sitting on the fence, looking for options to go independent, I got to imagine be okay having a conversation with them. Am I right? I'd, be, I'd be thrilled to. There's never a conversation, by the way, that's come from, and I'll just share this with you. It's kind of funny. Yeah. From LinkedIn or from all these sources, somebody listens to the podcast, they call, and I'll talk to anybody. There's no yeah. screening process about assets or anything else. Yeah. And I remember once I talked to somebody, um, and I can't remember the number that they put forth, but whatever the case was, it sounded like it was X- hundred million in assets. And instead it was X million. It wasn't yeah. 700 million in assets. It was 7 million in assets. We had a yeah, great yeah. conversation. I think I shared, you know, some wisdom and these people come back over time. When you plant seeds and you do good things, it's yes. shocking to me years later, someone says, Hey, we had a conversation. You said some stuff that was impactful and helpful. Yep. So it's sometimes you get a conversation like that. I had one recently from a gentleman outside of the country that was running a two and a half billion dollar shop. And we had an incredible conversation. We'll likely end up meeting. So I think you have to be open uh, if you're passionate and you love the industry, you love sharing ideas. And to your point, we we, we welcome a chance to um, share our thoughts and guidance with anyone who's interested in feedback. So I love that. And I can echo that. So many of our clients are people that I met four years ago, had a great conversation with, hopefully offering some value and, you know, in my experience and, uh, you know, a couple of years go by, you almost forget that that ever happened until they hit you up on email or voicemail or LinkedIn. Um, and they, oh yeah, right. So uh, so those small conversations certainly planting seeds, right, lead to bigger opportunities in the future. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Jeff, what's uh, what's if someone wants to reach out to you, what's a preferred uh, route of communication? You want to give email or send them to LinkedIn or just check out yeah, the would, website? I'd say my cell phone, frankly, it's because I'm on the road yeah. a lot. So okay. Um, I don't know how, if you want to post that or how I can, what the I, can I sure can. You can give it if you want to, I give yeah, sure. mine out, but I know a lot of people are scared to do that. So. No, 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 no. It's a two, one, six, four, six, nine, seven, oh, oh, seven. Uh, and I think through LinkedIn or email or otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out and we're happy to happy to chat. And I, I enjoy the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, Jeff, absolutely. My pleasure. I thank you for, you know, the, the partnership that we have and some of the business that we do together and taking time out of your busy day to spend some time with us. You got a ton of wisdom and I appreciate having the ability to tap into that. Thank you, buddy. Great to be here. Got it. You've just listened to another episode of RIA Collective with your host, Charlie Van Derven. For more information, visit riacollective.com. Now, have a great day.